I guess what we do is just drive around this circle here. It should be the second left exit. There's the hotel. Hey, look, kids. There's Big Ben and there's Parliament. There it is, there it is, there it is. I know. I can't seem to get over to the left, honey. I'll try next time. Sorry. We'll get out of this jam in a minute. Kids, Big Ben, Parliament again. In a struggle that you're in, just keep looping and looping and looping and looping, and you're like, Big Ben, Parliament. Big Ben, Parliament. This is what we're trying to avoid, man, getting trapped in that over and over and over again, and man, we just need to get free. So we are in week four of our series called Doomed to Repeat. And um, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 13, and everybody's like, oh, awesome, I've been waiting to be in Numbers. So we're in Numbers chapter 13 this week, um, and we're, we're kind of, we started at the promised land on week one, and we've kind of been working backward through the story. And this week, we're going to be um, kind of, as the Israelites get to the edge of the promised land the first time. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Israelites actually went to the promised land twice. It only took them two years to get to the promised land, but it took them 40 years to possess the promised land. So the the difference is not, it's not about how long it takes you to get there. It's about how long it takes you to be ready to receive it. Okay. And so that's what we're going to focus on a little bit today. And just kind of catching you up, if you're new to the Bible, a couple things. First of all, I read out of the New Living Translation. So if you've got your phone and you're using the Bible app, the NLT is the one that I use. Um, And so I encourage you to just follow along with that. Um, But just to kind of catch you up. So the Israelites, they've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then God miraculously comes in, brings these 10 plagues that um, cause all kinds of chaos for the Egyptian people. And finally, the heart of Pharaoh is softened enough to allow them to go. And on their way out, God tells them to do something very interesting. He says, I want you to plunder the Egyptians. He tells them, on your way out, just take whatever you want to from the people that have held you captive. And so they literally walk around. They're like, hey, I'd like that and that and that and that. And the Egyptians are like, okay, cool, here you go. That's an often overlooked miracle because how many of you know that, um, that slaveholders were not known for generously giving to slaves that they were losing, right? And so that's what happens. So this is a major miracle. And then they get to the Red Sea and it looks like it's impossible and God allows them to go through the Red Sea on dry land, not on muddy land, on dry land, the Bible says. And then they're in the desert wilderness for a long period of time and God provides manna for them. And there's even this uh, month-long period where they they wanted meat and so God provided them with quail for a month. And, and just like miracle after miracle, water from rocks and and. God appears on a mountain and there's just all of these different things that happen. And then at the end of this like two year period of time, they show up at a place where God had promised them from the very beginning, I'm taking you to a land that you will possess. So after watching God do all of these things, wouldn't you be ready? Like, all right, God promised it. I'm in. And so let's start our story here. Uh, Numbers 13, verse uh, 13. Actually, you know what? I'm going to give just a little bit of, so that I don't have to read quite as much. Um, so what Moses has done is he's collected 12 spies 
from each tribe. So there are 12 tribes of Israel, and Moses has grabbed one spy from each tribe. So he's got like, you know, he's got like Sean Connery and Timothy Dalton and Roger Moore and, and Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig and George Lazenby. He was only in Her Majesty's Secret Service, so that was just... And, 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 then, and then, I don't know, he might have even had Tom Cruise there. I'm just going to keep going until you guys laugh enough that I feel like we're satisfied that he's got all the right spies. Okay, so they're getting ready to go into the promised land, and all of a sudden, this sound goes through all of Israel. and goes, dunk, 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 dunk. No, I'm just kidding. See, I told you I was going to keep going until you laughed enough. All right, so now we get to verse 17. It says, Moses gave the men these instructions as he sent them out to explore the land. Go north through the Negev into the hill country. See what the land is like and find out whether the people living there are strong or weak, few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Do their towns have walls or are they unprotected like open camps? Is the soil fertile or poor? Are there many trees? Do your best to bring back samples of the crops you see. It happened to be the season for harvesting the first ripe grapes. So what Moses is doing, he's sending these people in to scout out so that they can create a battle strategy. How do we take the land that God promised? And the other part of this is Moses seems to be trying to encourage the faith of the people by taking them into the land to say, hey, look, it really is what God promised it was going to be, right? See, so he says, hey, is, is the land nice or is it dry? Is it, is it, are there lots of fruits and vegetables or is it kind of desolate and deserted? Is there a lot of people? Does everything seem nice? Does it look like a promised land, right? And so that's kind of what Moses is doing. And so, um, so he just wants these guys to get all the details, and this should have been that faith-building moment. And then verse, um, let's skip on down to verse 25. It says, after exploring the land for 40 days, <coughs> the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit they had taken from the land. And earlier it says that they took a bunch of grapes that was so large that they had to put it on a pole between two guys in order to carry it. That's how big the, the bunch of grapes, the cluster of grapes was. That's, that's not like what you get in the grocery store, the little, you know, Abby can carry it with her pinky. I'm talking about a lot of grapes that you got to stretch on a pole between two people. That's a lot. And so... It says, um, this was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. So they come back, and their initial report is, hey, yeah, it's exactly like God said it was. A land flowing with milk and honey. What does that mean? What's kind of the, the baseline? Because we hear that, but we don't really understand contextually what that means. The idea is a land flowing with milk and honey is that the land was good enough, rich enough, and strong enough to support massive amounts of livestock that would produce milk for the people. So when you're looking out at 2 million people or 2.2 million people, um, you're looking out and you're saying, man, that takes a lot of milk right? It, this isn't wake up and run down to the farm store to get some for breakfast. You know, this is like, we need some milk, right? And so they come back and they say, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. The idea there was more like, we think of like bee honey, right? But they thought more in terms of date honey. They would take uh, ripe dates and they would squeeze it down and turn it into like a syrup that was date honey. And so the land was filled with dates and fruit and every kind of livestock and vegetation you can imagine. So for an agrarian culture that's been eating just manna for 40 or for two years at this point, they're like, all right, we, we were into this. This is great. But now listen to what happens next. Uh, it says, but the people living there are powerful and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev and the Hittites, Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. 
So now, you see what's happening here. What has happened is they've come back and everything is just as God promised them. But their focus isn't on the promise. The focus is on the problem. Right? Because how many of you know that when God gives you a promise, he's not always saying it's going to be easy. He just says you can have it. But sometimes we want a promise with no problems. Don't we? How many of you have ever been guilty of wanting the promise without the problems? Right? That's, that's me. I, I tend to want the promise without the problems. And sometimes if there's opposition, we feel like, oh, shoot, it's probably not God. Well, tell that to the people of Israel. It was opposition, opposition, opposition. But the deal is that if God said it, you can take it to the bank. It doesn't matter if it's filled with problems. This probably is going to be filled with problems. It probably is going to be filled with struggles. But guess what? There's a promise at the end. And that's what we work toward. Now, now they, they started building the case that their problems are bigger than the promise. So that's what they start to communicate, right? Now they've seen something, and at the core of what they've seen lies this unbelief. Because what really has happened is that the people of Israel have more faith in the giants than they do in God. Right? They looked out. They saw these descendants of Anak, the the Amalekites, and, and all of these giant people that populated the earth at the time. And they said, listen, the giants are there, and they're scary. They didn't verbalize this exactly, but what they were saying is, we think that the giants are actually bigger than God. And so, so there's this, this big thing that happens here. And, um, and so as they're, as they're looking, it was a matter of what they believed and what they would choose to focus on. And so this unbelief in the promise of God leads them to focus on the problem. And this problem kind of overwhelms everything else. And I, I pulled some pictures that I want to show you guys. And we'll just kind of go through them one at a time here. These are, have you ever seen these kinds of photos? They're called forced perspective photos. And the way that they get these photos to work is the people in, in the background that look really small, they're just way back far away from the camera. And then the pot and the lady are close to the camera. And so it just sits in front of it, and it looks like that the people in the front are way, way bigger than the people in the back. They're not. And, and, and then check out this. We've got this one too. This guy we know that that guy is actually way, way, way bigger than the golf ball, right? He's way bigger. Than, how big is a golf ball? It's like it's between the guy and the foreground's fingers. But if you bring it close enough and stick it in your front view, it looks bigger than everything else. And if you position it just right, it will block everything else out. And so you can take something that's super small, bring it all the way into the foreground, and it takes up your entire field of vision so that you can't see anything else. And that's what the Israelites are doing with their problems. Let's look at another one here. See, this lady's getting ready to get squashed by a giant croc. That would be devastating, right? I, I don't know how many croc lovers that we have here, but I heard uh, Adam Sandler say, you know, I don't believe in, in beating my kids, so I just send them to school wearing Crocs, and the kids take care of it. That, that, that was kind of funny, I thought. All right, so we got this guy. You know, he's trying to get out, and he needs a big help, right? What else? We got this. Um, I think this is the last one that I saw. And, and this is kind of the way I picture the Israelites think of the giants, right? Like the, the giants are just going to scoop them up and blow them out, and they have no chance. But they have the wrong perspective on the giant, right? They got the wrong perspective on the giant. So um, now, one of the things that can happen to us is that we start to speak our problems. We start to glorify our problems. We start to magnify our problems. And as we do that, what we're doing is we're actually prophesying the promises of the enemy, I think that it's a better idea to prophesy the promises of God in the face of your enemy than it is to prophesy the promises of your enemy 
in the face of your God. Right? And so, so as we look at the, I, I think about David going up against the giant Goliath, right? And as he, as he goes in there, everybody's like, this enemy is too big to fight. And David's like, really? Because I was thinking he was too big to miss. It's all about your perspective, isn't it? See, when David saw Goliath, he just saw a big old target. When the Israelites saw Goliath, they saw a big old scary giant. You got to change the way that you look at things. You've got to see things based on the promise, not on the problem. You've got to filter your life and your circumstances and your struggles through the promise and not through the problem. You guys with me so far? All right, let's move on down to verse 30. It says, but Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. And and, and here's the thing I love about Caleb. He's got the vision for what God can do in spite of the problems that he sees. Were the giants that Caleb saw any different than the giants that the other spies saw? No. Were the walled cities any different for Caleb than they were for everybody else? See, Caleb came back with a mindset that said, they have walled cities, massive fortresses everywhere. Isn't this cool, guys? Now when we go in and take the promised land, we've got pre-built cities ready to defend ourselves against our enemies. And everybody else is like, how are we going to get in? How are we going to do it? How are we going to make it happen? And, And Caleb's like, what? What? God said he was going to give it to us. Stop. Let's go. Right? Don't you love that kind of faith? It's almost, uh, since we've been in Baltimore, I've said from the very beginning, I understand that I'm naive about a lot of things. Uh, When we first moved here, I was naive to uh, homelessness. I was naive to addiction. I was naive to uh, poverty in general. I was naive to how crime works in city context. I was naive to the way that, um, you know, a lot of different things happen in an urban context. And one of the things that I've prayed over the last nine years since I've been here is, God, don't make me less naive. Use my naivety to help me to do things that other people are afraid to do because they're cynical. See, because what happens is it's easy to be cynical. It's easy to say, no, it's impossible. No, it won't change. We've got politicians all over our city that feel that way. It's not going to change. Nothing's going to be different. You're like, then why do we elect you? What are you talking about? It's not going to change. Literally heard from one of our city council people. It's hopeless. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? It's hopeless. I would like you to leave and give your seat to somebody else that doesn't think it's hopeless, right? I believe that God wants to do some things and he wants to do some impossible things. We serve the God of the impossible. So let's stop being cynical. Can I tell you guys something? I've experienced some stuff that's weird in the city. I've had some bad stuff happen. I've had stuff stolen to me, stolen from me more times than I can count. I had a shooting in my backyard. I have prostitutes that do things right outside my house. I have, like, I've had my windows shot out on my car. I know it's bad out there. But guess what? God is good. And he is greater than every problem that plagues our city. And he is greater than every problem that you face. So stop looking at your problems and start looking at your promise. I remember um, after a while, we had had so many things stolen out of our backyard. And the common theme was, it was always Saturday night that something got stolen. And I would get up Sunday morning and I would let the dogs out and then I would be walking around for about 30 minutes and I'm like, the dogs would normally be in by now. Where are the dogs? And then I go out, the gate's open because somebody broke in and stole something out of my backyard. I told Mary, I said, I don't care that they're stealing stuff. I just wish they'd shut the gate. I'm gonna put a sign on the gate that says, when you are finished stealing things, can you just please shut the gate? I just, that's all. Just be courteous. You know, that's all I need. 
So, I mean, it's one of those things. Are you going to let it destroy you? Are you going to let it beat you up? Who gave me what I have anyway? God did. I'm not worried about it. The things that God gave me, if God wants me to have more, he'll replace it. I'm not worried. Not worried. What good does it do for me to get upset and mad and angry and take to Facebook on tirades about how awful that city is, right? I'm the guy that believes that God has designed Baltimore City to be Hope City. So I'm just going to keep prophesying the promises of God over the city of Baltimore. And so no matter what happens in your life, continue to prophesy the promise of God. Speak it. And I'm not saying name it and claim it. That's not, that's another just dumb thing. Don't do that. Because what that suggests is that if you ignore problems and say things that are not true but are positive, that everything will be better. Okay? So in other words, hey, I'm not sick. I'm not sick. I'm healed in Jesus' name. That's not biblical. Jesus goes to every person he heals and he says, what can I do for you? And they say, I can't walk. And Jesus always says, well, great. Now you said you can't walk and I can't do anything. Thanks a lot. And he went on to the next person, right? No, he says, okay, stand up, take your bed and walk. Your faith has made you whole. What was faith about that statement that I can't walk? What's faith about that? Faith is I'm taking my problem to the one who can do something about it. And I'm not afraid to say what's wrong because I know he's right and he can fix it. That's what we do. That's what faith looks like. That's how we live this thing out. Does this make sense? All right, so let's move on. Verse 31. But the other men who had explored the land with, land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. Caleb never said they weren't stronger, did he? He just said we can take the land. He says... So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. So not just the giants that are there will devour them. Not just are the cities impenetrable, but the land itself is going to eat you if you go in there. How many of you have just been walking down the street and all of a sudden the sidewalk ate you and you were like, whoa, how'd that happen? If it weren't for the great sewer systems, I never would have got out of that, right? Like, it's, it's crazy. This is the kind of lies they're just, they're building this myth and this legend to scare people. No, don't do it. You see how this is working? And it says, um, the land we travel through and explore will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. So not we're just the descendants of Anak huge. Now they made everybody huge. There's not one regular-sized person in the whole land. They're all Sasquatch people everywhere. And so we even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. Now, just kind of an interesting historical point. When they mention the fact that they, they look like grasshoppers, grasshoppers for the Israelites were the smallest form of edible protein, okay? So ask John the Baptist. That's what he lived on was grasshoppers. Delicious, right? So it was the smallest form of edible protein, living edible protein that was allowed in the law. And so as they, as they are making this comparison, what they're saying is basically, hey, we're shrimp to these guys, right? We're just... We're little, we're tiny, and they can devour us. They can eat us up. You see this big, like, blown out of proportion thing? And then they say, I love this, they say, and we look that way to them as well. So apparently they're walking around interviewing all of the people in the land of Canaan. Hey, do we look really small to you? I just, we, no, we're taking a survey. We just wanted to know. I know you're trying to get into Walmart, but you'll be entered to win a, a trip to I don't know how they did it, but like, come on. Are they asking people like, hey, do we look small to you? Because I think Caleb looks kind of small. And I just, I just wanted to know, because we're going to go back and give a report to the 2.2 million people that you see over there. See that massive group of people? We're going to go tell them how small we are to you. So if you could just encourage us with, do you think we're small? 
So they're like making more stuff up. The land is going to eat you. And we, the people, there's all of these people they know. And we're, we're small to them. We know that it's not true because in Joshua chapter 2, when Joshua sends his spies in, he gets to the city of, of um, Jericho and they go in and, and they talk to Rahab the harlot. And what does she say? She says, hey, your stories have gone before you of how your God brought the plagues on the people of Egypt and how he split the Red Sea on your behalf and how he destroyed the army of Pharaoh for you. Word traveled and we're all terrified of you. That was the actual official report if you read in Joshua chapter two. That's the official report. So they go in and they manufacture a report that is opposite of the real report because they're so focused on the problem that they can't see the promise. And it's rooted in unbelief. I just don't believe God can come through. You don't understand. I've been in the same cycle over and over and over for years. God can't change it. You don't realize how big my sin issue is. It's way bigger than God. Now, you would never say that, right? But you live it, you act like it. That's the way that it happens. Guys, I'm guilty of the same thing. So when I say you, I mean we. We do this kind of stuff all the time. But let me tell you something. God is able. He's bigger. He's bigger than your problem. And so here we go. Um, I'm going to skip down and read. I want to read verse four of 14. It says, then they plotted among themselves. Let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. I'm sorry, what? So let me get this straight. You guys were slaves for 400 years, lived at the end of a rod, whipped, beaten, forced into labor, multiple hours, 12, 18, maybe 20 hours a day, just slavery, working hard constantly, producing something that you would never own, always going to be owned by someone else. And that's what you want to go back to. I talk to people all the time that I watch them. They believe the lies of the enemy. And they go back to what held them in bondage for so long because they give up on the promise too soon. God wants you to walk in a promise, but you can't walk in a promise if you're on your way back to Egypt. You can't turn your body to Egypt and get to the promised land. You got to take your eyes off of Egypt and put it on the promised land and trust that God's going to move you in. That's the way that he works. And so one of the things too that I'm reminded of is I'm just kind of processing what we just read is the fact that Sometimes we hang out with people that are just negative and they only see the problem. You see the rainbow, they see the storm, right? You, you, can, you can be walking down the road and see a $100 bill on the ground, pick it up and say, thank you, Jesus. And they say, can you believe how people litter? Right? Like they can take they can take anything and make it negative. Can I encourage you? Stop hanging out with people like that. Just stop. You don't have to hang out with them. You say, but you don't understand. They're family. I can tell you a secret. You don't have to hang out with family 24 hours a day. Find positive people. Fill your life with them. And and show, show up at a family gathering, love on people. Be like, so good to see you guys. I'm having a, hey, no, I got someplace else. I got, I was just glad to see you guys. I love you. You too. Yep. I love you. Yep. See, you, you know what I'm saying? You don't have to embed yourself in that thing. 
You, you need to surround yourself with people who are going to believe the promises of God, who are going to prophesy the promises of God, who are going to speak life into you. Those are the kind of people you need to run with. Because if you run with people like that, you will take the promised land. It's just a matter of time. All right, so here we go. Man, I lost where I was. Here we go. All right, let's, I'm going to skip on down to verse 26 of chapter 14, because there's a lot of stuff here. It says, um, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long must I put up with this wicked community and its complaints about me? Yes, I have heard the complaints the Israelites are making against me. Now tell me this, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. Listen to what God says here. He says, how long will these wicked people complain against me? God is taking this personally because he's made a promise. He's done incredible miracles, signs, and wonders. He's provided for these people, and now they're complaining against who? Against him. And he takes it personally. Let me ask you this, guys. What if every time you complained, God took it personally? What if you are hurting God's feelings with your complaints? Because if you really sit down and look at it, and you start to evaluate all the blessings that God has dumped into your life, it makes our complaints seem a little bit crazy. I know that you've got bad stuff going on. I'm not saying that there's not stuff that you're going to feel frustrated and be negative about for a moment, but I'm just telling you, don't live there. Don't live there. Choose to focus on the positive. Choose to focus on the promise. Do you know that there is, in, in marriage, there's this ratio of, of healthy comments given that most people who have a healthy marriage have this quotient. It's a five to one ratio of positive to negative comments. If you have a healthy marriage, if you have a healthy relationship, there's generally five positive comments to everyone negative. That's where kind of the sweet spot is. And so it's illustrative though of, of what we need in life, right? We thrive in positive. We don't thrive on negative. Negative eats your soul. Negative destroys you. Negative is like a cancer that will eat you from the inside out. And so, so when, when you are constantly overlooking all of the good to only focus on the negative, it's a problem. We're going to really quickly examine a couple of passages of Scripture from the life of Paul. So flip over to Philippians. And um, Paul, man, if there was anybody in history that had a good reason to complain, it was the Apostle Paul. I... I I forget where it's found, but there's a couple of places in his letters where he says, if anybody has the right to brag, I do, because I've been beaten multiple times. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten by the Romans. I've been beaten by the Jews. I've been, I've been in prison more times than I can count. I've, ex I've been stoned, not like high, but like people throwing rocks at his head trying to kill him, that kind of stone. This is what Paul endured. He says in, in, in some of his writings, he says, if you look at, at my back, you can see the marks of Christ in my back. Right? This is a guy that's been through it. If anybody had a right to complain, Paul has a right to complain, but he chooses not to complain. He chooses to glorify God. And he, he chooses to shift everything that's a negative into a positive. That's a special kind of person. Right? How many of you... Some of you have people in your life that they can take every negative and turn it into a positive and they drive you nuts. Because you're like, I just want to be negative right now. Stop being so positive. Right? You got those people in your life that they take every negative and they turn it into a positive and you want to throat punch them. You need them in your life. You need people in your life that will help you shift perspective and stop you from wallowing in your self-pity and negativity. You need to listen to the positive people in your life. You need to allow it to change something in you and say, you know what, you're right. But a lot of times what we do is we let our pride rise up and we want to justify our negative feelings 
And so we want to push back to people who try to kindly and generously and lovingly admonish us to think on the positive, right? Sorry, I'm preaching here. And so Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to what Paul says. He says, excuse me. He says, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Man, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Do you see this juxtaposition that Paul is establishing? He's saying crooked and perverse people are negative, argumentative people. Shine like a light. Stand out. Look different. It's easy to complain. It's easy to be negative. It's easy to find fault. Anybody can do that. If you don't believe it, just scroll through Facebook for about three seconds. It's insane. We live in a world where baseball has been replaced as America's national pastime by getting offended at stupid stuff. Right? Like getting offended at stupid stuff is our new favorite thing to do. Everybody just walks around getting offended, angry, upset, negative, complaining, backbiting, gossiping. It is so entrenched in the modern Western culture, and it dishonors God. And so as Paul is writing these words, here's the most incredible part of it. Paul is in a Roman prison writing to a Philippian church. He's literally chained up in a little cave. He's chained to a Roman guard. And as he's in captivity, he's saying, hey, guys, do everything without complaining and arguing. Be, come on, you can do this. Get cheered up here, fellas. You're like, where are you, Paul? On a beach somewhere at a resort? No, I'm actually in prison, chained to a Roman guard. Oh, okay. Well, there's that, right? So, so there's this, there's this author named Travis Bradbury, and he wrote this book called Emotional Intelligence 2.0. How many of you ever heard that book? A couple of you. One of the things that he, he talks about in his book is that the more negative you are, the more negative you become. Isn't that interesting? That's why negative people tend to get worse with age, Right? So, so your grandma was really crabby when she was younger, and now she's really crabby? It's because you tend to get crabbier and more negative the older you get. He discusses it kind of in detail, and one of the things that he arrives at is this conclusion. It's called confirmation bias, right? So you're looking for things in your world that will confirm your opinions on things, right? So, so you you tend to, you establish a belief about something. And in this context, it would be a negative belief. So you're negative about something. So you're looking for things that confirm your negative bias, right? So all guys are jerks. So you tend to notice only jerky guys, right? And what's interesting is, is that people tend to date jerky guys when they hate jerky guys, Isn't that weird? Why? Because there's a confirmation bias. Now, if you start to pray for all of the good men of God, and you start to, there's this, there's this nerve cluster at the base of your brain. I'm going to be real nerdy for just a second. It's called your reticular activator. Everybody say reticular 
activator, okay? And this nerve cluster, what it does is that it opens your brain to receive data that is important to you, okay? So like right now, your body is getting bombarded by millions of ions every second, and you technically can feel that. However, your brain, your, your reticular activator has said, those signals are not important, so don't pay attention to them. And so you don't pay attention to them, otherwise they would drive you nuts. And, and then, then when you find something that is important to you or important to your survival, you, your brain will allow that to filter in. Your reticular activator allows your brain to process that information. So, for example, here's a good example. If, if you bought a new car, so I bought a, a, a Chrysler Town & Country, a blue one, a, a few years back. When I bought it, I never noticed any blue Chrysler Town & Countries. After I bought one, I can't believe how many blue Chrysler Town and Countries are on the road. Why? Because my reticular activator has opened up my brain to look for inputs for blue Chrysler Town and Countries because it might be mine. Right? I can't tell you how many times I walked through a parking lot and tried to open the wrong van. How many of you have ever done that? You've gone to the parking lot and you tried to get in the wrong car. Right? It's just you're like, oh, gosh, I'm an idiot. Right? And so, so it's, it's awesome. So this is, this is the kind of thing that we're talking about, though. If you're wired to think negatively, you'll be negative. It's the way it works. And so Paul, now let's skip down to verse 17 and 18. He says, but I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want, uh, I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. See, what Paul realizes here is that he's not the main character in the story. God is the main character in the story. At the very best, he's supporting cast, right? On his best day, he's just in a supporting role. And so his goal is to lift God up. And so this complaint and this negativity is rooted in this unbelief. Now, flip over to Philippians 1. As I'm wrapping this thing up, and I never say I'm wrapping it up, so you know that when I'm saying I'm wrapping it up, I'm wrapping it up. Verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12, and it says, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. This is a guy that's writing from a prison cell, chained to a Roman guard. And he says, everything that's happened to me here has been good for the spreading of the gospel. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. He's not looking at his problem as a problem. He's looking at his problem as an opportunity. And so check this out. He says, and because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. So Paul's imprisonment has served to steal the resolve of all of the people in the Roman church. They're encouraged because he's strong enough to endure imprisonment with the right attitude and use it as an opportunity to spread the gospel. And then think about this. The way that the Roman guards worked is they had uh, the prison was... um, was watched, the prison cell was watched by a guard. So they would bring a guard in and they would chain the prisoner to one guard. And that, that prison guard was on duty for eight hours. And then they would replace him with another guard. And then they would pre- replace him with another guard. And that shift worked over uh, multiple days and they would change guards in and out so that there was some variety and so that the guards did not feel imprisoned. And so as Paul is in here chained to a guard, he's, he's reversed the mindset, right? Because he's saying, if I'm going to be chained to you for the next eight hours, you're going to listen to an eight-hour sermon. <laughs> now who's in prison? <laughs> right? And Paul just leverages it. He's like, man, these guys aren't going anywhere. So I'm just going to pour Jesus in, pour Jesus in, pour Jesus in, pour Jesus in. And he keeps sharing his faith and he keeps sharing his faith. And as he does, these guys are hearing the gospel until the point where it says, the whole palace guard knows that I am in chains because of Christ. 
he shared the message of the gospel with every single guard in the Roman prison system. Wow. Now that's what faith looks like, right? Because God gave him a promise when Jesus appeared to Paul, he tells Paul that he's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles, right? And that he's going to spread the message of the gospel throughout the Roman world. So he, all through the Greek Isles and in Turkey and all of these different places, he's planting these churches. Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth and all of these places. He just do, 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 do. That's it. And then toward the end, he's hoping, man, I hope I can get to Rome and plant a church in Rome. And then there's some indications that he was maybe even hoping to get to Spain at some point. Never made it to Spain, but he ended up in Rome, but he didn't end up in Rome as a preacher. He ended up in Rome as a prisoner. So God fulfilled his promise. Paul got what he wanted, but he didn't get it the way he wanted it. But instead of focusing on not getting what he wanted the way he wanted it, he said, God, I don't understand why I got it this way, but I'm going to use your promise for your glory. Because it's not about me. It's about you. You see this? And so this is what faith looks like. This is what belief looks like. Belief looks like I'm going to pull out of my complaining, backbiting, nasty attitude, and I'm going to choose to focus on things that are positive and uplifting and encouraging. I'm going to, I'm going to choose to focus on the promises of God. And if you're ever wondering what God's promises are, I just encourage you. Google promises of God in Scripture. It's a great place to start. You'll find hundreds of God's promises for you. And just live in it. God designed you to live eternal life starting today. Not after you die, today. Because eternal life is something that happens in your spirit, not in a place. It happens inside of you. And you take heaven. When Jesus showed up, he created these intersect points where heaven and earth meet. The presence of God. When God deposited his spirit in you, he was creating you as his temple where heaven and earth meet. This is what it's designed for. So everywhere you go is heaven as long as the spirit of God dwells in you. And so you got to stop living like hell if God's designed you for living like heaven. Right? And so this is kind of the, the whole point. Would you stand with me? Father God, today... We thank you that we have heard from you through your word. Lord, I love your word. It is life to me. God, first of all, let me start by asking you to forgive me for all of the times that I'm negative. All of the times when I focus on things outside of your promise, when I look at the problems, when I see the struggles, and I choose not to discern your strength in the middle of it. God, I think about the fact that here I am 2,000 years after you came. And so many times we complain about the darkness as we stand in the shadow of the cross. God, help us to move past our unbelief. Stop thinking that you somehow owe us something. God, you don't owe me anything. What do I have need of in light of the cross of Christ? Lord, don't let me live with unbelief that is manifest in my mouth with negativity. Let me choose to speak life and hope. I want to ask if there's anybody here, you just say, Pastor, I've been focusing on the problem instead of the promise. 
I've been living in unbelief. I think there's a couple of layers of people here. One layer is people that have never really believed God and trusted him and said, God, I need you to save me from myself and from my sin. I believe that you died on a cross. I believe that you rose from the grave and I want to be all in. If you're here today and you say you've never made that decision before, You've never asked God to forgive you. You've never said, I profess you, Jesus, as my Lord. I want to give you an opportunity today to step across the line of faith into the promises of God. If you'd like to do that this morning, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you specifically. Anybody at all? All right, awesome. Anybody else? Good. Praise God. I just want you to to pray after me. And let me just say this. We don't believe that it's a prayer that saves you. We believe that it's God that saves you. Okay. Saying a little prayer and believing that you're going to heaven is hocus pocus. Trusting in God to save you from your sin and ensure your eternal life is faith. Okay. So it's not about how you pray or the way you pray. It's about the fact that you're putting your faith in Jesus. Amen? So I want you to pray this prayer after me, though, just kind of as a way to solidify, yeah, I'm moving forward today. And if you've already made a profession of faith and you still want to pray along with me, you're welcome to. God, today I put my faith in you. You are my hope. You are my strength. Please forgive me. I want to follow you. I believe that you died on a cross. And I believe that you rose again. Please save me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now here's the second group of people I believe that we have here. And that is a group that feels like, man, I just can't seem to get my eyes off the negative. I just, I feel like I keep getting locked in and I don't want to live there. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that girl. I want to focus my attention on the promises instead of the problems. If that's you and you want God to help you move beyond that, I want to pray that he will give you his supernatural strength to help you see the promise instead of the problem this week. Amen? So if that's you, raise your hand up. Yep. There should be a lot more of us, right? Yes. Come on. God, right now, this courageous step that's being made to say, yes, I can get negative. I can focus on negative. I'm tired of focusing on the problems. I want to see the promise. God, I believe that no matter where you are and what you're doing, you are working. And God, I want to be a part of what you're doing. God, I pray that you would release new promises in my life. I pray, God, that you would help me to see things that I haven't seen before. I pray, Lord, that the negative would grow small and faint in comparison to who you are in my life and the promises that you've given me through your word. God, I pray that you would do what only you can do. I pray, Lord, that you would satisfy the heart's longings of each person in this room as they pursue you and put you first. God, we love you. We trust you. We thank you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Man, you guys don't want to miss next week. We're going to keep building on this thing. I can't wait to see you. And don't.